Amen. Praise God. Well, today we are going to be turning to a new uh, sermon series. We've, we've uh, reached the end of the book of Acts in the New Testament, looking at that era of the mission of the church, really to continue to proclaim King Jesus until his return. Now we're going to go way back into the Old Testament together to the books of Samuel. And so you can begin to turn there. We're, today we'll be looking at the story of Hannah and the birth of her son, Samuel. Uh, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. But to give a little bit of a background for this book, where is this located within Scripture, within history? What are some of the themes and the topics of the book of Samuel? Um, this, this book takes place around about 1,000 B.C., around that time. It spans uh, the lives of really uh, Samuel, King Saul and King David are kind of the key, the key characters here in the books of Samuel. David's reign ends around 970 B.C., and that's where the book of 2 Samuel ends, or the very beginning of actually 1 Kings as well. This is actually one book. We, we have it divided in, in our English Bibles into 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, but from its writing back in you know, 1000 B.C., up until the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is about 200 B.C., so for about 800 years, it fit on one, uh, one, one uh, parchment. But then after they gr- translate to Greek, Greek has vowels. It takes up more space, so it got divided into two scrolls. So we've, that's why we have First and Second Samuel, but really it's one book, the book of Samuel. Um, the four stories really that you see an outline in this book, chapters 1 through 7, are really the story of Samuel. So even though the, the book bears his name, he's kind of a key player only in the, in the beginning of, of this book. Really, his story kind of fades out at about chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. So the, the first section is about Samuel. The second story is really the story of Samuel and Saul. And so we meet the first king of Israel. That's chapters 8 through 15. Then the, next, the third story is the story of Saul and David. And there's sometimes when they're getting along well, there's other times when Saul is trying to spear David to the wall. And, and we see Saul's decline and David's rise to, to power and to authority and leadership as God determines and directs. And then really the fourth and final story is the story of King David. That's the bulk of, of uh, 2 Samuel. The topics that we see really within the canon of Scripture and even in your Bible so, so, you know, as you're going to do biblical interpretation, there's a variety of schools of thought that it would be well for you to tap into. One of those is the historical grammatical school where you're looking, what are the words in the book? You know, if we're reading 1 Samuel, what words are used? What do these words mean? What do the phrases mean? So trying to understand what, you know, what are the words that, that are actually in God's word, right? And then historically, where does this fit? Who wrote it? What was the occasion? What was the setting? What was the date? Those are all helpful questions to ask as you go to God's Word. Another important consideration is how does it fit within the whole of God's Word, within the canon of Scripture? Well, 1 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, provides a bridge between the times of the judges and the times of the kings. Really, it's the introduction of the times of the kings. You could actually look at Samuel as the final judge. A judge, it's not like a judge today that has a gavel and a, and a robe and renders judgment. Really, in the book of Judges and in this season of history for the nation of Israel, a judge was a deliverer that God appointed. 
And really, Samuel fulfills that function. He's a faithful person who usually comes in when there's some opposition, some threat to God's people. And, you know, they're judges instead of a gavel. They usually have a sword, right? Uh, Or they've got a tent peg. Or they've got some weapon that's used to thwart the enemy. And Samuel is this faithful person who's called by God, appointed by God, to now bring in the, the, the end of the time of the judges and the beginning of the time of the kings. Um, so that, that's where it fits within the, the scope of Scripture. Another major topic that's happening here uh, in the book of Samuel is God's covenant with David. So this is kind of another way of doing biblical interpretation. You ask the question, how does this fit within redemption history? So again, the big picture story, A, there is a God. B, he's a good creator God. Go back to uh, Genesis 1 and 2. As he creates, it is good, it is good, it is good. He's the king. See, sin messes up God's plan. Genesis 3. And then really, Genesis 4 through Revelation 22 is the story of God's plan of redemption. And so how does the book of Samuel fit within God's plan of redemption, his plan to get us back to that good creation where he created us to be with him and to experience his love and forgiveness? Well, the covenant with David is very key to the redemptive historical aspect of the book of Samuel. God makes some pledges to King David. God sees David as a man after his own heart. Uh, David then is promised some things in God's covenant, the the really important one being your kingdom will never end. There will always be a descendant of David on the throne for all of eternity, all of time. And that only makes sense if you've read your New Testament and you know that Jesus is a descendant of David. So a super important book when it comes to God's plan for redemption throughout all of time introduces the idea of what is a king. And really, so now to look at it theologically, and I'll, I'll give you one more school of, of biblical interpretation that would be good for you to dig into and to apply as you're studying any book of the Bible. It's called TIS, or the Theological Interpretation of Scripture. And what that means is that theological interpretation of Scripture. <laughs> TIS. I'm getting a dirty look from Tina here. It's not, it won't be the, the only time today. <laughs> Too much coffee, sorry. All right, let you sound that one out, okay. So what that means, T-I-S, it means that as we go to God's word, you're only gonna understand it if you come with ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart that's open to be transformed in God's presence. That's how God's spirit reveals truth to you from God's word. If you come as a skeptical uh, or a, a nerdy person who's just looking to pick apart and, and you know, study in a detached, analytical way, you will miss out on the transforming power of God's Word. It's possible to read the Bible in other ways other than the theological interpretation of Scripture. In fact, there was a community college class that I was hoping to get a chance to teach back in Minnesota. They weren't interested in talking to me. But the the topic of the class was the Bible as history, philosophy, and literature. And you can't read the Bible that way, you know, in a detached, well, it's, you know, it's a historical document. It records some things, but with this bias slant. Or it's a philosophical worldview. What was, you know, what was the mythical ideas that these quaint people way back then had, right? So all all of these ways are 
skeptical ways or, or even a literature, as literature. You know, oh, what genre are we in? Not that there's no value in that, but, but we come as believers who believe there actually is a God. And he actually reveals himself through his word. And so we come with that heart to say, God, what is the message to us as your people in the book of Samuel? What's that theological interpretation? I would say three major themes that we'll see as we begin to unpack this book together. One is God's sovereignty. He's the true king. He reigns over all. He's in charge. He's supreme. And anyone who gets on board with that gets to experience blessing. Really, that's the second theme, is that obedience leads to blessing. When you acknowledge God as king, when you walk in his paths, there's blessing that comes down that journey. And then finally, the, the, kind of the opposite of that, when you do not acknowledge God as king, sin has, has far-reaching effects. That's really the third theme in the book of Samuel. So these truths, they seem pretty basic, right? God's the king. Obedience leads to blessing. Sin has far-reaching effects. But when you consider those theological claims, over against the beliefs of our culture today, I think it's pretty evident that our world does not believe these three truths. And so we as believers coming to God's word today need to recognize and acknowledge the lies that we're immersed in in our culture that are part of the air we breathe and it works our way into our thinking. We don't, we don't really in function believe that God is the king. We believe, you know, in fact, there's a phrase, you are the master of your own destiny. And if you were to say that to most people today out at Southlands or in our neighborhoods, they go, yeah, yeah, you, are, you really are the master of your own destiny. You know, if you, if you set your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. You need to have a goal. You need to pursue your dreams. You need to, really, you are the king of your life is the message of culture. Well, against that worldview, the book of Samuel reminds us God is the king. God is sovereign. He is the master of your destiny and of all of history. I think another belief when it comes to that second principle that we see here in the book of Samuel, that obedience leads to blessing. Most people today, maybe students, you would agree with this. Most people, when you hear the word obedience, you think that's not fun. Obedience is not fun. Rebellion, that's fun. Right? Okay, you know, to, to be a little bit on the edge, to push the envelope a little bit. Well, we're going to see in the book of Samuel that obedience is fun. Obedience is what produces blessing or here even fertility, you know, in, in all, the, all that that means. Not just having a child, but just living that prosperous, blessed life by God. That flows from a place of obedience. That's different than the beliefs of our world that we may be tempted to be drawn to. And then finally, this theme of sin's effects being far-reaching. The lie that our culture would tell us and that we are sometimes tempted to believe is that my sin really only affects me. You know, it's this personal struggle that I'm dealing with. And really we're gonna see that sin's effects are far-reaching, affecting relationships, families, nations. My sin is not just a personal issue, it, it ripples out and it, it affects even subsequent generations. So these are some sobering messages from the books of Samuel. As we go to God's word, we're not studying it as literature, history, and philosophy, we're studying it as people who come and say, God, change us as we come to your word. Transform us in your presence. And so let's now look um, at this story of Hannah and her, her husband. Her, uh, it's, it's a, well, I won't, I won't tip off all the characters that we're going to meet here because it's a complicated story. But let's get into here First uh, Samuel chapter 1. 
as we look at this theme of obedience and blessing flowing from that. So it begins here in verse one. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. So here we're seeing an instance of polygamy in the Old Testament. I had a, a student who came up through our youth ministry who one time said, how come we see Old Testament polygamy, but new, in the New Testament there's not polygamy? My answer, very profound answer, I said, you know, human evolution, we've discovered what a bad idea it is to have multiple mothers-in-law. <laughs> uh, yeah, tongue-in-cheek. But it is a good, it's a valid question. You know, you look at the, the qualifications of elders listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It says the, that if you're going to be an elder, if you're going to be a shepherd of God's flock, you need to be the husband of one wife. Okay? You need to be a one-woman man. And so here we have a man, Elkanah, who we're going to see is a godly man. He's going to sacrifice. He's faithful. He's a church-going man. And he has two wives. But we do see already the problem of having multiple wives, just like we did with Jacob back in the book of Genesis with Leah and Rachel, especially when there's one wife who has children and one who does not. The competition, the rivalry, the dissatisfaction of this, of this plan, this was the reality for this time in history in the ancient Near Eastern world. And so within this context, we see uh, some of the problems that arise with polygamy. And so now... Um, that, that introduction is going to set up the story that's to follow. Verse 3, now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. That last verse is a little bit hard to translate in the Hebrew. You may have a footnote there in your Bible that may give a, a different uh, version of that verse. How do, you, how do you work out these Hebrew words and convey that correctly in English? Another reading of that may be, although he loved Hannah, he would give Hannah only one portion because the Lord had closed her womb. Um, the, the word uh, there for her portion has to do with a face or a nose. And so it could be that she received a choice portion. So really, the, it, it is a little bit hard to translate. And you do, you do encounter verses like this in the Bible where you're saying, what did that mean back in 1000 BC in a different language in a different part of the world? How do we understand that today? I think what we can for sure say, it clearly says that Elkanah loved his wife, Hannah. Uh, then we can look at questioning, well, what, does this, what is this with portions? Well, as you go to sacrifice, a part of this journey to, the, to, the, to offer sacrifice to the Lord of hosts is to enjoy a feast. So this is not a portion that, the, that Panina and her children are offering to the Lord. This is part of the food that they get to eat to celebrate, to celebrate this occasion of worship. And so, you know, it would make sense that Hannah would receive one portion. She's one person. It would also make sense that if there's a connection with Elkanah loving his wife, there'd be something about her portion that is significant, whether it's a, a bigger portion, a more choice portion, whatever that is. We can see that within the context here. 
And so Elkanah is, is loving his wife, aware of this place of dissatisfaction that she has, the feeling that she is not blessed because of the infertility that she is experiencing. There's pain involved in her story. Well, now we get a little bit better picture of that pain as we go to verse 6. And her rival, the other wife, Panina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Then Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? A lot lot going on here, right? So you see the pain of the reality of Hannah's day by day, week by week, year by year existence. And it even gets into the worship service that as she shows up to worship, there's pain involved. And what is to be a time of celebration and feasting for her is a time of fasting. And there's pain. And while everyone else is rejoicing, she's suffering. In fact, she has someone in her life that's there worshiping with her that is causing her to suffer repeatedly and really rubbing her nose in it. Saying, hey, I'm blessed and you're not. Oh, by the way, did you forget? I'll just remind you again this year. Look at the portions that I and all my sons and daughters am enjoying. How's that? How's that uh, choice portion that you're eating alone? And she's not even able to eat. She's not able to enjoy and to feast and celebrate. There's sorrow, there's weeping involved. Maybe you felt like that at church at some point where there's been pain mingled in with this time of gathering together to celebrate and worship. And maybe you've had somebody who's even made it difficult for you to worship. I think the lesson that we see in Hannah's life is continue to worship, continue to show up, continue to be faithful, continue to expect God to to move and to work. Elkanah tries to bring comfort. Really, I I don't know that his last sentence is super helpful. You know, hey baby, you know, you got me. And it's just not working for Hannah. Um, You know, despite his, his offer of saying, hey, you know, You've got, you've got this great husband. She is still longing for what she does not have, a, a child that will be her own. And so really at, uh, you know, at this time in history and in this culture, to have offspring is a big part of the significance of one's life. I'd say you know, that exists today as well. Infertility is a major issue for couples today. And if that's been part of your story, you can resonate with the pain that Hannah has gone through and is going through and being reminded of year after year. The raw reality of this human existence. So now, what is Hannah's response? We get a glimpse into Hannah's heart as we go to verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. This is her vow. It gives us a glimpse of her heart. She's saying, God, I yield my heart's desire to you. You are the king. And already we're seeing Hannah 
as that figure within the book of Samuel, one of those figures who is walking that path of obedience. Obedience that even comes before the blessing. You know, it's one thing once God has poured out a blessing to you and a gift and there's fruitfulness and there's fertility and there's blessing, it's one thing to at that point go to recognize and say, okay, God, man, you, you have so blessed me, now I'm going to be faithful. Now I'm going to obey and follow. And yet we see in Hannah's heart that that obedience precedes the blessing. Even while she's awaiting the blessing, where does she turn when she is reminded of her place of being unblessed, reminded of the withheld blessing in her life. She weeps to the Lord. She cries out to him. She has a heart yielded to him. And we're seeing her intention and her plan is to say, God, if you will answer and bless, then this thing that is most precious and dear to me, I'm not going to grasp it and hold tightly to it. I'm going to hold it loosely and offer to you the son that you give to me. My heart's desire, Lord, even belongs to you. So we get a glimpse of her heart. There's this promise and this pledge and this vow of her giving her son over to the Lord. That's going to come up again at the end of the chapter. We'll see the fulfillment of that. And now we see in verse 12, as God hears her prayer and answers, verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli, he's the priest seated there at the temple of Shiloh, where Elkanah and Panina and her children and Hannah have come to sacrifice and to feast. He's watching and observing this woman who's praying and crying and weeping before the Lord. Specifically, verse 13, Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Can you picture this sort of a prayer where you're intensely praying, but to yourself, and there's tears coming out and, and her lips are moving, but there's no audible sound coming out? Maybe you've prayed like this or you've seen this before. So Eli's observing this. And it says Eli took her to be a drunken woman. You know, maybe she's been enjoying the feast at Shiloh a little bit too much. And so she's, uh, her lips are moving. There's no sound coming out. What's, what's up with this lady? And so Eli said to her, verse 14, How long will you go, be, go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you to add insult to injury. You know, she's hurting, she's crying and pouring out her heart, heart to, the, to God, and now the priest comes and reprimands her for what he perceives to be drunkenness. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace and the God of Israel grant your, your petition that you've made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. So apparently her explanation of this prayer, this weeping, it immediately convinces Eli of the truth of her claims. And he, he immediately changes his perspective on her. She's not a drunk lady babbling on in a holy, sacred place, but actually she's a very devout woman of God who is praying from a deep heart's cry. And he says, may God answer your prayer. Go in peace. Be blessed. And so the next day, they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. 
Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, in the biblical sense of that word, knew. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked, him, asked for him from the Lord. So we see God hearing her prayer, answering. Uh, we're given the name of this new little baby boy, Samuel. And then an explanation, as is often the case in your Hebrew Bible, you'll see a connection between that Hebrew word, how it sounds, and then the meaning. So there's a, meaning, a, a, a name and a meaning of that name, a significance. There was a, one of the judges, Jephthah, who made a vow to the Lord. He said, God, I'm, gonna, I'm going to sacrifice to you the very next thing that comes out of my house. And the door opens and out walks his own daughter. And he, he ends up fulfilling that vow. That name Jephthah is from the Hebrew word for to open. So it makes sense that he pledged to, to God the next thing that comes out of the open door of his house, and that name sounds the same. Uh, Sarah, Sarai, when she heard that she and Abraham were going to be parents in their 90s, she laughed about that in, in, a, in a disbelieving sort of way. So what's the name of their son? Isaac, Yitzchak in Hebrew, which means laughter or to laugh. So you see these, uh, this sort of a, a word play that, that happens with the sound of the Hebrew words. Samuel sounds like the Hebrew word uh, for to, to hear of God. El is the, the end part of that, God. So to hear of God, to be heard from God. Or you could say uh, it could be from Shem, the name. So it could be the, he over whom the name of God has been said could be another way of looking at that name Samuel. A couple different Hebrew words that, that would, that would uh, be brought to mind as you hear that name Samuel. Also, it's related to the name Saul, who's another character that is going to be introduced. His name means he who is asked for. We're going to find the people asking for a king, a human king. And Saul, his name sounds like that, that verb to, to be asked for, the one who is asked for. And so now... She's holding this baby. She's made a vow to God. God has heard her prayer. There is blessing now. There, there was obedience first. Now there's blessing. And she's holding this thing that she has desired and longed for. We saw Hannah's heart faithful, believing, yielded, surrendered, even before God answered her prayer. I think the lesson for us today is really to follow in that path that Hannah demonstrates for us to yield to the king to recognize that he is sovereign no matter what life circumstance we are in to bring praise to him even before our prayers are answered to trust in him to obey him even before the blessing arrives maybe you're in that place today where you're going through that season of difficulty and hardship where it's hard to trust you're not sure what the next step is well, the call to you from God's word is to be faithful today, to be obedient today, to put your trust in him, to not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him, anticipating that he will then direct your paths. Proverbs 3, put your hope in him, look to him. So what does she do? Now she's got this baby, she's made a vow, she's made a pledge, how does this story end? Verse 21. 
the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay the vow. Except this time, Hannah has a baby. She's got a young, a young boy with her. And so she did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Do you remember her vow? God, if you will hear my prayer, give me my heart's desire, I will offer him to you. So God, it's not that the desires of my heart will become this thing that then I fixate upon. That the blessing of God will actually turn into an idol. That the good things that God pours out will be the thing that I now worship. But God, I'm going to continue to keep my eyes focused on you. That even after the blessing is poured out, the blessing will yield obedience. So really it's this cycle, right? The obedience precedes the blessing, but the the blessing also produces obedience. And so for Hannah, God answering her prayer, God hearing her cry, God granting her request results in more praise. Like the song, every blessing you pour out, I turn back to praise. And that's what we see Hannah doing. And so she she uh, uh, speaks to her husband. She says, I'm not going to go worship at this time. I'm a mom of a newborn. And once he's weaned, at that point, I will then make that journey and present him at the house of God as I, as I had pledged to do at his birth. And Elkanah, her husband, he's a godly man. In verse 23, he said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. That's the the end of the the story that Hannah had pledged earlier. I will give to you, Lord, if you will hear my prayer and bless me with a child, I will give him to you. Now at the end here, in my in the version I'm reading from, the ESV, they, they put the word lent because it's a different Hebrew verb. Okay, so maybe your version, the version that you're reading from today there, if God's word translate that, um, I give him over, or maybe just simply I give. You know, I promised to give and now I am giving. The reason that the ESV translation team use a different English word is to kind of pique our interest and go, why why did she say she was going to give and now she's only lending? What is going on here? So if you dig into it a little bit, the, the first verb that was earlier in chapter 1, again, this is, a, uh, this is an, another Bible interpretation tool. Look at what is the meaning of the word. What's going on there? You can do this research yourself at a website like Blue Letter Bible. It would be a great place to start. Or maybe your Bible software would have some uh, original language helps that you could... Find out what's the Hebrew that's going on behind the English translation. So the first verb, give, is just the general verb to give, to set, to place. This other verb is like to give an answer to, to give what is requested, to lend. 
So if I say, hey, hey, Mike, can I borrow your car keys? And you give me your car keys? That would be like this second give, like we're seeing at the end of chapter one. A giving like a giving what is asked, giving what is required, giving what is requested. And that's how Hannah sees her own son. That he's not just a gift that was given to her. He's a gift that was given to her in a way of God saying, I would like that gift. I would like you to fulfill your pledge. And so really, in in the giving of her son by God to Hannah, Hannah recognizes that God is saying, will you give me your son? And so the giving that she's doing here at the end is that kind of giving where God has requested something and now she is faithfully giving what God has requested. So it's not that she has changed her vow, that she promised to give and now she's only lending. She's giving him to serve the Lord there forever. We see it's very clear in verse 28. As long as he lives, he is lent to God. She's giving him over to God for his entire life. She has no intention of going back to Shiloh at some point and taking her son back away from God saying, he's mine now. But she's yielding him to God. Some of us parents, you know, we're in that life stage where our kids are now venturing out into God's plan for their lives. This is a a tough time in life when you know when I've got a, a teenage daughter heading off to Brazil uh, pretty soon I've got another daughter going off to college I got you know some young man that's courting her and there's talk about marriage in the future man it's a challenge good thing he's a godly young man or I'd really have some problems with this but there is this this step of faith to say, okay, God, what you have given to me temporarily and are now asking back, I release to you and I trust in you and I know that these are not just my girls and my son, but they're really, they have a heavenly father who's going to be with them forever and they really ultimately belong to him. So to get our heart to that place where we surrender and we yield and we trust in the king, not allowing God's gift to become our obsession not allowing his blessings to become our idol, to take our eyes off him because of the blessings, the good things that he's given to us, whether it's possessions, a spouse, a family, children, whatever that is, the good things that God gives can actually become the thing that we desire. But to hold that loosely and go, no, God, the blessings result in obedience. The blessings cause us to release and trust in you all aspects of who we are, all the things that we long for, we yield to you. We're going to just end with this prayer at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 2 because really it ties up the story of Hannah and Samuel and it gives an outline really of the whole book of Samuel as well. And so this is Hannah's prayer. It may remind you of a New Testament passage in Luke chapter 1. Mary's song of praise, or it's called the Magnificat. There's really a lot of parallels between the prayers of these two women. Really prayers that are beyond their own experience. Prayers with some deep theological truth for all of God's people at their time and today. Prayers that really give us a glimpse of the heart of God. So here's Hannah's prayer. You're going to see the themes of the book of Samuel that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon today. 
Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Really, these first few verses are a reminder of God's sovereignty. God is the king. He is supreme. We're seeing Hannah's faith and belief in that, and really a template for the books of Samuel, a reminder that God is the true king. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol the grave and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Again, themes of God's sovereignty. A reminder that God is the one who gives and withholds blessing. You're not a self-made man. You're not a self-made woman. You're not the master of your own destiny. There's a reality bigger than whatever you think you can make happen. And there is a God who's at work. Sometimes in very evident ways, sometimes behind the scenes. And the life of faith is this exciting journey of learning to trust in him and then seeing the blessings that he brings, seeing the way that he sustains us through the times of difficulty and increases our trust in him. And no matter if if we're going through good times or bad times, we continue to trust and to be faithful and to obey. Verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. This is a a reminder that God is the one who fights the battles for his people. If you want victory, don't trust in your own strength. If you want victory, trust in the able and mighty hand of your true king. He's the one who establishes thrones and kingdoms. He's the one who elevates, exalts, and puts down. Trust in him. Trust in his strength. And also, really, the theme of salvation and judgment, which go hand in hand. If you have a quarter in your pocket, pull that thing out. The head side is salvation. The tail side is judgment. They go together. If you are righteous, faithful, obedient, you get the salvation side, the blessing side of that coin. If you are unfaithful, trusting in your own strength, disobedient, unrighteous, you get the judgment side. 
And so judgment and salvation go hand in hand. We're seeing that in Hannah's prayer, in her, her prayer of praise and, and trust in God. Finally, just that verse 11, that is kind of the end of this story. It says, Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. We do get another glimpse later as, as uh, Samuel is there with Eli and Shiloh. Uh, we do hear a little bit more about kind of the end of the story of Hannah and Eli, so you can read that a little bit later in chapter two. But today, the challenge for us as God's people, and we're gonna go to him in prayer as we, as we conclude our time together today, is, is to trust in him to be the God that fights our battles, to look to him as our strength, to pour out our heart to him in those times of struggle, to choose obedience even before there is blessing, and when there is blessing, to have that result in praise as well not delighting in the thing that he's blessed us with in his provision, not fixating on that, but returning all to him in praise. That's our invitation today. Next week we'll see more about the effects of sin, the far reach of sin as we get into chapters two and three. Could we stand together and pray? Maybe today there's some part of Hannah's story that has been difficult for you to process. Maybe you can resonate with going through those times of withheld blessing and difficulty. And today you're saying, I want to continue to be faithful and to trust even if I'm not seeing the outcome of my prayer. Maybe you're right on the cusp of that blessing being given to you. And the temptation is to kind of hold on to it and to look to your own strength. Today God's inviting you to hold that loosely, return that to him in praise. Maybe today you've been fighting your own battles and God's saying, look to me for your strength. Whatever that call is that God is speaking to you by his word in your situation today, let's go to him in prayer and submit ourselves to him. God, we thank you that you are the giver of blessings. Thank you that your arm is strong, that you are mighty. Thank you, Lord, we can come to you in brokenness. We can come to you in weeping. 